Psalm 53, the title here of the psalm tells us that this is a contemplation of David, which we, we see in the titles of several consecutive psalms here, beginning in Psalm 52 and uh, going on uh, through Psalm 55. And so there's a series here of these psalms, contemplations, or uh, sometimes the thought is, anyways, that that word may refer to um, these being wisdom type of psalms. Um, and so they are especially um, beneficial if we think of them in that terms. But uh, Psalm 53, I'd like to read it and uh, then have a word of prayer and then we will get into studying it because this is an interesting psalm and I think it will be a, I hope it will be a benefit to you this morning. So let's read Psalm 53 and you can just follow along. I'll begin there in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing and help as we study his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are, again, glad at the privilege the opportunity that we have to open your word for a few minutes this morning. Thankful as we read these verses, we read this psalm and we see here a glimpse into the heart of David as he considers the plight of the wicked and ungodly, but also the hope that he has of the future and what you have promised. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that we can study your word, and we can be encouraged by the promises that you've made and kept to know that you will continue to keep your word. We can stake our lives on it. And I pray this morning that you would help us all to see that. I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we study your word and help me as I preach to be clear. And I pray, Lord, that I would speak Words that would be a benefit and a help. And nothing that would take away from or distract from your word. That your Holy Spirit might work in our hearts today. To do all that is in your will. We'll give you the praise. We'll give you the thanks for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know every once in a while, when we study through the Bible, we're forced to ask questions that are difficult to answer maybe even impossible to answer with certainty. Now, you might not immediately think of the Psalms when you think about where the tricky passages of Scripture are. But this morning, we come to Psalm 53, and I have to tell you that this is one of the most challenging ones that I've tackled. 
since we started the study back in August of 2015. The main reason it's so difficult, at least in my opinion, is that Psalm 53 is almost an exact duplicate of Psalm 14. And we're not going to go down through all of this. I just put this up here to show you a little chart that I made this week comparing Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and I've highlighted the parts that are different. The vast majority of these two psalms is word for word identical. We studied Psalm 14 way back in November 22nd of 2015. Now you might wonder why that makes this so challenging for me. I mean, maybe I could just copy my notes from that message and preach it again. You know, that would have been easy. It would have given me, you know, this week could have been like a mini vacation. You know, I wouldn't have had any sermon prep to do Right? Well, not exactly. Obviously, you can see they're not identical, although they are very similar. But at the same time, anytime we, we read Scripture, we have to ask some questions of the text. And one of the primary questions we have to ask is, why is this here? What purpose does it serve in this particular place? So in the case of Psalm 53... We would, we would wonder, why does God allow the Holy, or why does God the Holy Spirit, rather, move David to write two psalms that are so similar? Some people have suggested that a scribe was trying to copy Psalm 14, but that he had trouble reading it. They say maybe his copy was damaged, maybe the scroll had some damage, and so some of it was, was not easily readable. And so maybe he guessed at the wording in, especially in verse 5, where you can see where most of the differences take place. And maybe he just was guessing there and he kind of made a mistake. One of the interesting things, by the way, that I learned this week is that in those verse 5 that's so similar between the two um, is that the Hebrew letters are, are almost all the same letters in the two verses. Okay, they're just arranged differently. Different words in, the, in, in, the, in Psalm 53, but it's most of the same Hebrew letters are present, which is why some people say, well, maybe a scribe just, he couldn't read it, and so he kind of saw the letters and he kind of put them together in a way that made sense in his mind and came up with Psalm 53. Other people suggest that David wrote Psalm 14, and then someone came along later and took Psalm 14 and then adapted it for a different situation, Right? For instance, an example that they, they think is that during the captivity of Israel, because Psalm 53 speaks about, the, about him in verse 5, him who encamps against you. And they thought, well, maybe this is, someone took this psalm that David wrote and they, re, and they used it again, but maybe in the, in, you know, during the captivity or during the, the siege of Jerusalem or something like that. I don't really think either one of those are very good explanations, to be honest. And I think that if we look closer at the immediate context of Psalm 53, we see something interesting that's helpful. The heading for Psalm 52 that we studied last week makes reference, if you remember, to the murderous actions of Doeg the Edomite. Remember when he, when he killed 85 of the priests and then all of the men and women and children and the livestock in the, in the town of Nob? And we, we read about that in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. 
Then you look at the heading of Psalm 54, and it makes reference to uh, the treachery of the Ziphites. And this, that, that instance is recorded in 1 Samuel chapters 23 and 26. And so it's interesting that we kind of have these two psalms, Psalm 52 and 54, both of which the headings point us back to 1 Samuel, and we have chapters anywhere from chapter 21 to 26. Not everything is covered there. But then you look at Psalm 53, and the first word of the psalm, the fool. That Hebrew word there is the word Nabal. Nabal. It's translated fool. The thing that's interesting about that, and the reason I find that interesting, is, is if you read in 1 Samuel, and if you start in chapter 21, and you read through the account of Doeg the Edomite, and you read all the way through chapter 26 to the story of the Ziphites, in the middle, in chapter 25, you come across a story of a man named Nabal. A man whose name is the same word as the first word of this psalm, the fool. Nabal, according to his wife Abigail, was appropriately named the fool. Got to love his parents for that. That was nice. Actually, we don't know, we don't know if, that was his, if that was the name he was given by his parents or if that's just what people called him. It might have been behind his back. You know, we don't know for sure, okay? But because, it, it, you know, it, you, you kind of wonder, like, whose parents would name their kid the fool? If so, that's pretty cruel. But regardless, his wife Abigail tells, us, tells, tells David in that account that that's an appropriate name, that that's exactly what he is. She says it describes him perfectly. Foolish Nabal received kindness from David. And he responded to David's kindness with rudeness and hostility. And his wife Abigail showed great wisdom because she stopped David and his men from killing Nabal. Listen to what Abigail said to David. A man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. Remember, David was on the run, right? We read about that last week. He had escaped from Saul, goes to Nob, meets with, uh, uh, with Ahimelech, the priest, goes from there to the land of the Philistines and then into the wilderness. Saul is pursuing him, and that's why Ahimelech and the priest and all the people of Nob are killed. And then Saul is continuing the pursuit of David, and David is in the wilderness, and he's trying to run from Saul. So Abigail references that. A man has risen, she says, to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord, that's David, shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. David's response to Abigail is also worth noting. He says to her, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. You see, David admitted that he and his men were about to destroy Nabal and all of the men in his household. Frankly, it seems out of character for David. I mean, to take a personal slight and to turn it into an act of violence and bloodshed. 
It would have been a terrible mistake for David to take into his own hands and act in matters that rightly belong to God. And this conclusion, by the way, is confirmed by the context of the story. Because when Abigail told her husband how nearly he had come to being destroyed by David, he apparently suffered a stroke. And after some days, he died. According to 1 Samuel 25 and verse 38, Nabal's death was an act of judgment by Yahweh. So David could rightly say this, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For Yahweh has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. We look back at that account, Nabal the fool. The fool who came against David in hostility. David, the man who had been anointed to be the next king. The man that God had promised to be with. Nabal the fool. And yet David didn't attack Nabal. God sent Abigail to intervene. Protected David, kept David from doing that thing. And I think that as David reflected on that situation, David himself took Psalm 14 that he had written. And he adapted it to speak to this experience that he had had. And if that is true, then Psalm 53 fits exactly in the Psalter where it belongs. Between Psalm 52 and Psalm 54, pointing us back to that instance in the life of David. Nabal is the perfect example of a Nabal, a stubborn fool. And that's how we open the psalm. Nabal, a stubborn fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. He's a man who lived his life without regard for anyone or anything else other than his own pleasures. Right? He's cast off all restraint and respect for others. He's driven only by what satisfies him. Of course, we, we recognize that Abigail's husband was not the only such fool. There are many today, just as there were in David's time, who have determined in their own heart that God does not exist. Now, I'm not really talking here, and I don't think David in the psalm here is really talking about those people who call themselves atheists. In the ancient world, there were very few people who we would classify as philosophical atheists. People who followed a, you know, an, 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 a philosophy and, and said, we don't believe that there is God. Of course, there's plenty of people like that today, but in the ancient world, that was not common. But what he's talking here is about the multitudes of men and women in David's day and in ours who have lived their lives as practical atheists. They don't think about God, whether he exists or not. They don't think about what God expects of them. They don't think about the fact that every word, every thought, and every deed will someday come up for review and judgment by that very God. This kind of person 
that the psalm is talking about here is what Alec Mochier calls a spiritually unprincipled person. Because he doesn't think about whether his choices are right or wrong. He just thinks about whether they work in his favor. He doesn't live by any spiritual principles that guide his actions other than what seems good to him at the time. And I think we all know people like this. And at times, we are also tempted to act like this and to be like this. And what David is talking about here, and what I'm speaking of this morning, is not really the kind of person that we would all recognize as evil. Right? This guy is probably a decent human being. He's not going about determined to be the worst kind of man he can possibly be. He just doesn't really think about anything other than right now. What's in front of me right now? His life is dominated by present needs and present drives. So if you were to ask him, well, what do you think about facing God someday in judgment? He might shrug and say, well, I don't really think about that at all. I'm pretty busy right now just with life. I don't really give a lot of thought to that. That's a long ways off, if it is at all. I don't know. You may not think of this person as evil. But the question is, what does God say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Corrupt. Abominable iniquity. None good. Everyone turned aside. Filthy. None good. No, not even one. This is God's description of the man or the woman who lives their life without thinking about what God expects, what God wants. We're not just talking about the violent person or the hate-filled person here. We can sit here and say, well, those violent criminals and, and people that are filled with hatred, they, yeah, they're evil. We would all classify them as evil. We're talking about the person who just goes through life. Making choices today. Weighing the pros and the cons. What looks good to me? What do I like? What do I want? What works best? Never giving a thought to God. And what does God desire? And what will God say about that? You see, we, we like to give ourselves a pass on this because we're not really bad people. At least that's what we tell ourselves, right? But the difference is that the all-seeing, all-knowing God who created the whole universe is seated above in the heavens, and He's looking down throughout the creation. He has looked through all of the creation from one end to another. And He has looked for one thing, a man or a woman who on his own does what is good, 
who on his own seeks after God. And you know what he's found? Nothing. One preacher said it this way, the fallen race of man left to its own energy has not produced a single lover of God or doer of holiness, nor will it ever be so. So you need to stop fooling around. This is serious business. You're not a good person. You don't naturally love God or do good. Sometimes people like to think that they're the exception. Right? That we're just, I'm just the exception to the rule. I know that people are bad, but I'm not bad. But don't you think that if you were the exception to the rule, that the all-seeing, all-knowing God of the universe would have seen it? Wouldn't He know that you are the one person who really is good? Who really does good? You're not the exception. You're just like everyone else. A sinner, corrupt, filthy, going left when God says go right. Not really thinking about the long-term consequences of your actions. That's the picture we have here in these opening verses of Psalm 53. And to put it bluntly, you, just like Nabal and all the rest of us, are fools by nature. You know, the Bible talks about how we have responded to the facts of God's existence and His power. Paul says in Romans 1 that even when we see very clearly in the natural world who God is and how powerful He is, Paul says we do not like to retain God in our knowledge. And we Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What he's saying is that when we come face to face with the facts of who God is and the power that he has, we just put it out of our minds and we refuse to deal with it. This is the human response to the knowledge of God. I think of it this way. When you were a child and you were lying in bed at night, and the shadows underneath the bed or in the closet were terrifying to you, maybe you pulled the covers up over your head to hide from whatever was in those shadows. Thinking that if, if you just didn't see it, you'd be safe from it, right? If you could just put it out of your mind, then you'd be fine. And of course... We laugh and say, well, it's childish. But Paul says that's the way each of us is when it comes to God. God is there. He created this universe. He created you. You can't deny it. You can try. It doesn't work. And so we don't like to admit it. We just... Pull the covers over our head. 
And we just act that if we don't see him, he won't bother us. If I just don't acknowledge him, then he won't judge me. If I just pretend he's not there, then he'll just leave me alone. And I can get by just fine. Well, that's why he calls us fools. That's why he calls us fools. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. The fool covers his eyes, pulls the covers over his head because he doesn't want to see what's there. I don't want to acknowledge that's true. This is how we respond to the knowledge of God. Look at verse 4. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, or don't call upon God, rather. We don't call on God. And as a general rule, we seek to destroy anyone who does call on God. Because we don't want to be reminded that God exists. We don't, we don't want to be reminded that God has a rightful claim to our lives. We don't want to be reminded that someday He will be our judge. We'd rather put God out of our minds. We'd rather focus on music or movies or food or football or anything to distract ourselves from thinking about God. In the second half of the psalm, though, really doesn't really so much deal with the, the fool anymore. I know he's a topic in verse 4 and 5, but really, God is the one in focus here. The judge. The judge. The steadfast judge who is unmoved. You may choose not to think of him. You may choose to disregard him. You may choose to put him out of your mind. But I can assure you that God does not run from thinking about you. You may not think much of God, but God is thinking of you. Look at verse 5. There they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them in, uh, to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. On the one hand, we have God's thoughts toward the fool, the worker of iniquity who refuses to call upon him. On the other hand, we have God's thoughts toward his people, those who rejoice in him and worship him. You see, for the man or woman who avoids thinking about God, who doesn't want to deal with God, I just want to live my life. I'm not really interested in God and all this stuff. Verse 5 tells us that God has prepared a fearful judgment. Notice how David describes it here in terms of God's past action. He has scattered the bones of Israel's enemies who encamped against them. The picture here is of a battlefield. A battlefield where a great army was arrayed against God's people, confident that they would win the battle, totally unafraid. But we look out on the battlefield now, and what do we see? We see their bones. 
scattered all over the ground. It's not just that Israel's enemy was defeated, but notice they're filled with terror. They're completely scattered. They're put to shame because compared to the power of God, they were no match. You get a picture here of an army that began to run and flee in terror, being completely scattered, unable to escape God's judgment, not even taking the time to bury their dead just leaving the bodies of their fallen to rot in the field, their bones to be bleached by the sun. I'm not sure if David has any specific instance in mind here. He may just be thinking in terms of the promise of judgment. But I think the point's the same either way. If you have been a fool, lived your life without thinking about God, without planning for the future day of judgment, then you need to take these words to heart. Go on living apart from God. Don't call upon His name, and you will be ashamed. You may not think about God, but God thinks about you. And you know what God thinks of you? If you are this stubborn fool, if you have disregarded Him, Put him out of your mind. Refuse to call on him. You know what he thinks about you? I can say this with confidence only because it's here in the text of Scripture. I don't think I would say it otherwise. He despises you. He despises stubborn fools. You may think that you're a good person. God says you're wicked and corrupt, immoral and filthy, and you cannot escape his judgment. That ought to terrify you. That ought to drive you to your knees as you cry out to God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. But notice how David also speaks of his hope. Hope for the future. Again, remember where David is is in all likelihood as he's writing this song. He's hiding out in the wilderness. He's got a band of 400 men, all of whom are essentially on the run from the law. He's being hunted by King Saul, who has a force of 3,000 men. And so while he may be thinking about Nabal, the fool, and that encounter, I, I don't think that Saul was very far from his mind. But his confidence here is in the promises of the Lord. And that confidence was actually strengthened by his encounter with Nabal. Think about this for a minute. David had a run-in with the stubborn fool in which Nabal had insulted the man who had been anointed to be the next king. And in his anger, David almost took matters into his own hands and paid Nabal back for his foolish words. But God, through the wise words and actions of Abigail, kept David from wrongdoing. But God did more than that, see? He let Nabal's, or rather, he didn't let Nabal's insults and hostility go unpunished. He put Nabal to shame. 
He destroyed Nabal. And David didn't even lift a finger. This was a reminder to David that God always keeps his word. Right? David didn't have to do it himself. You see, we get so worried about whether or not God is going to do what he said he's going to do that we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to fix it ourselves. We want to make it happen. That's what David wanted to do. He was going to fix this problem of this man who was in rebellion against David. And David maybe even was thinking of it in this term, that Nabal hadn't just rebelled against David, Nabal had rebelled against God. Because David had been anointed by God. And therefore, when Nabal said what he said to David, he was actually insulting God. So Nabal was the fool who said in his heart, there's no God, who determined, I'm not going to do what God wants. I don't care what God wants. I'm going to live my life the way I want. David may have been thinking about Nabal and thinking, man, this guy has, he has uh, rejected God. He has impugned God. And so David may have thought, you know, I need to put this man down. He needs to suffer for what he's done. He needs to understand that this kind of thing cannot go unpunished. And it's almost as if God stepped in and said, David, don't worry. I can take care of punishing the wicked myself. And I can keep my word to you. So just trust me. What a reminder to David that God will always be faithful to keep his word. David was in a vulnerable position, but God was his protector. And so I think that's why at the end of this psalm, he comes back to God's promise of deliverance for his people, Israel. But notice what this is, and this is really important for us to understand verse 6. This is not just some generic promise of deliverance. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people. You know, the people of Israel were not in captivity in David's lifetime. This was not something that David had experienced, being the, the Israelites being captive, being taken away captivity. And yet David understood, I think, the promises of Scripture. That one day, God would bring back his people from wherever they had been scattered. When Jesus Christ came and established his kingdom on earth. That, I think, is what David is referring to here. He's talking here about the promise of God's kingdom on earth. That God is going to establish his kingdom. And you see, if we kind of follow this, this thought, God's judgment on Nabal proves to David that God will keep his word. David, you're going to be king someday. You can remain serene and trusting even while Saul is after you with 3,000 men. Because in this matter of Nabal, God took care of you. He protected you. He dealt with the problem of the evil person.
But he also looks ahead to the future day when God will destroy all the wicked, scatter their bones in judgment. That's the day that the Lord will establish his kingdom and he will rule over his people from Zion. That will be a day of rejoicing. When the Lord Jesus Christ takes his seat on David's throne and rules over all the earth. When he punishes the wicked, the foolish ones who refuse to call upon God. When he brings his people back from all over the earth where they've been scattered by the enemy. That's the day when the promised kingdom of Christ is established on the earth. That's the day that David is hoping for here. That's the day that he's confident will indeed come. And so I think one of the overarching themes of this psalm is that God's plan cannot be derailed. and It cannot be frustrated either by the schemes of unrighteous men or by the helplessness of his people. See, you realize God does not rely on human means to accomplish His purpose and His goals. Again, David is here hiding out in the wilderness. He's cut off from virtually all human support. But even there, God is able to protect David, provide for him and his men. The fool Nabal could not escape God's wrath and judgment. And the fool Saul would not escape God's wrath and judgment either. In both cases, and this is interesting, in both cases, David had the opportunity to kill those men. It's right there in the same context of 1 Samuel, chapters 24, 25, and 26. In chapter 24 and 26, he had the chance to kill Saul twice. Chapter 25, to kill Nabal. And in every instance... God protected David, and David didn't take the matter into his own hands. He didn't go about to determine justice by himself. Instead, he trusted in the Lord. This is so important. David learned to trust in the Lord, to let him fight on his behalf. And so even as we look at Psalm 53, this seems to be a major theme here. That God will fight for His people by judging the ungodly, those who foolishly oppose His will. And if God's going to fight for us, we don't need to fight for ourselves. You know God's going to bring His kingdom to fruition by his own power, and he does not need your help to do it. Are you looking? Are you looking for the Savior's coming? When he will claim his throne? David was. That's why he sings here at the end of this psalm, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. He's longing for it. He's hoping for the day when Christ would sit on the throne in Zion and rule And that salvation, deliverance would come. And we are in so much better position than David was to see the promise of Christ and His kingdom. Because we have the entire New Testament record of Jesus' first coming. David was trusting in God's promises 
because he saw the Lord deal with Nabal at the edge of the Judean wilderness. But you and I have the word of God concerning our Savior and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We can read of all the ways that Jesus confirmed the truth of God's promises in the Old Testament. And I would say that gives us a much deeper, much broader foundation for confidence, for faith in the coming kingdom of Christ than David had. But here's the question that we have to end with, really, is how does this knowledge affect your life? What difference does it make if Christ is coming back, if He's going to establish His kingdom, if He's going to judge the wicked, if He's going to deliver His people? What difference does it make today in your life? Well, let me just ask some questions to get you to think about this. I think you can come to, to this on your own. Are you able to rest confidently in the Lord when so many people around you are living as though God did not exist? Are you able to trust that Christ's kingdom will come and that He will bring justice to the oppressed so that you can endure hardship? Maybe even persecution. Are you willing to let God fight your battles and balance the books rather than trying to get justice for yourself? Are you able to rejoice and be glad today in anticipation of the glory of God when we see the face of Jesus Christ on this earth? And maybe most importantly, do you recognize that living your life without giving thought to God and His Word and what He expects of you is utter foolishness? And that if you do not repent and humble yourself and trust in the Lord, you will find yourself among those whose bones are scattered in judgment, not among the people who are saved and blessed forever by Jesus Christ when He comes with His kingdom. I trust that Psalm 53 will renew your confidence in God if He is truly your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray.